Welcome back to the Super Sapiens podcast, where we explore Super Sapiens metrics, the app features and experience, and how Super Sapiens around the world are driving the next step in human performance evolution. Homo Sapiens, meet Super Sapiens. Intra-race, you'd want to take it with carbohydrates. Not only do you, you tend to use the carbohydrates more effectively, but it also helps with using the ketones. Um, because as I mentioned, you want to make sure that not only I, the reason it, it helps with, with the exogenous glucose is you can help mitigate that spike and then subsequent drop when you're taking the glucose, but also with the ketones, <clears throat> you don't want to push your blood glucose down. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to the Super Sapiens podcast. I'm Zylan Fanek. With me is Dr. David Lipman, the Director of Applied Science and Content at Super Sapiens. David, how are you? How are you going? Great, thanks. Yeah, great, thanks. Uh, you trying on your terrible Australian accent. Hopefully, we clip some of the stuff before we hit before we you know cut for this episode. Hopefully, you throw some of that on social, mate. That'll be good. Listening to your terrible Australian accent and my very good South African accent. That is, and then you fumbling that, around with the the intro. Dave is referring to us all day instead of working, sending each other voice notes in our respective countries' accents. Um, exciting episode, this man. I got to learn so much speaking to Brian, representing Delta G. Um, fascinating, fascinating um, episode and really, really looking forward to digging into this one. Before we do, some community shout-outs. David, I want to start with our country manager in France, Quentin Valognes, winning the inaugural 40-kilometer version of the Finland gravel race. On some level, this doesn't surprise me at all. He's the most like competitive man in the world, uh, <laughs> ex-professional cyclist for Team Nova Nordisk. Like he was a sprinter, so this this strikes me as like right in his wheelhouse. Doesn't surprise me at all. And that's also why he he chose the 40k version instead of doing the 177 or the 77k version because he knows it could put them uh, in the short sprint. I need to take that up with him. But yeah, Quentin lives with type one diabetes. Super cool to see him still at the top of his game. Lisa Norden was also in that race. Was she in the 40? I wasn't sure what distance she did. No, no, she did the full version, the 177 kilometer. As I say, got to send that to Quentin, take it yeah. up with him. Yeah, so, yeah, well, I mean, I was going to say this about uh, Quentin before, like if someone was there and said to him, you won't ride this 177, you're too soft, or something similar to that, he would definitely have ridden it. <laughs> um, yeah, Lisa got uh, 11th in the female field, which is which is huge. Um, she's obviously not a cyclist. She has cycled very well and, and won national championships from memory uh, on, on the bike, but is obviously a, a you know, Ironman triathlete now. So uh, cool to see her there doing that. Um, you know, for those interested, check out the blog we have with her. It was a really cool blog inside, you know, with insights into when she started using CGM back in like, you know, 2015 or something. So really cool blog. Uh, she's done some, yeah, some cool stuff recently. I'm excited to see how her, you know, Ironman season plays out. Um, Ryan Collins, tell me, we've had him on the podcast before. What has he been up to? Yeah, uh, good episode too. Very popular one, actually. Uh, so that's really cool. I mean, I shouldn't say I'm so surprised, but that was really cool. Some really good insights there. Uh, Ryan was training up for a race across the West. It's a team race, I believe. And one, it broke the record, him and his teammate. And uh, we've got a data blog that I'm trying to get pulled together from Ryan's data. So watch the space, watch the blog. We'll uh, try and get that done and get that up as soon as possible. So, 
We had big news a few days ago um, in the Super Sapiens ecosystem. Our Aura integration is finally here. Um, you work closely with the science team, David. You've been privy to this and been working hard on this behind the scenes. Yep, 100%. Uh, it's exciting for us. Uh, you know, appreciative of the product team getting it out. Uh, there's a few other things that were done with the same update. Uh, trying to action some from feedback from users and, and address some other things. So it's been really cool to see that come together. Uh, yeah, fast follows to come. We will uh, expand that integration a little bit. We'll expand some other things. So keep watching the space. Um, some new stuff coming and, and yeah, it's really exciting. I think the Aura stuff is, is cool as a starting point and we'll get better from there. In relation to that, actually check out our latest blog post on blog.supersapiens.com. We explore the relationship between sleep and nutrition and how tracking overnight glucose and HRV can help unlock, unlock um, new levels of performance. Um, so have a look at, at, that, at that blog post. Real, real good value there. Um, David, before we get to Brian, quickly, your, your training... I don't think you're training for anything specifically at the moment. I think you're just training for life. But I noticed on Strava, you do quite a lot of your runs slowly with like a really, really low heart rate. Why is that? Because uh, I can't run faster. No, like um, I use a bit of a polarized approach. So try and do most of my running. Very easy aerobic somewhere zone one, two. Um, and then try and do a couple sessions a week. Uh, where it's zone three or above, uh, try and sort of do it that way, you know, all year round. And then the more, that's really a product of the volume I try and run, right? So I try and run many days a week, usually up to seven, sometimes as low as five, um, try and get north of hundred kilometers a week in my heavier phases. At the moment, I'm about 80 Ks a week. So we're getting there. So 50 miles or, or 60 miles, depending on which, uh, which one you're using. So yeah, I sort of, I guess, um, there's a couple of factors to it. I slowed down to make sure I could recover properly for the intensity because the intensity is what's going to drive a lot of my adaptation. Uh, the slowing down was a product of listening to podcasts, actually. They help me run slower. They keep me slower than if I listen to music or, or don't listen to anything. And so that's sort of how I do that, to be honest. And then, yeah, uh, is there any other, like, I don't know, what that, else you want to know from me, mate? On, like, the, mu guess, on the music topic, yeah. I saw you had a fast run yesterday. And you were listening to Drowning yep. Pool and we're going to show age. Yeah, I actually went onto YouTube after that and listened and went down the, uh, the Drowning Pool rabbit hole and brought some very good memories. And I saw you tag that run as you could run a 230 marathon if you had Drowning Pool in your ears, which would be like 15 minutes off your, off your PB. Yeah. I mean, that was more tongue-in-cheek than anything else. Um, there's some cool research on the efficacy of music in helping performance. Uh, it also changes heart rate, interestingly. Your heart rate can sync up to the uh, BPM, so maybe drowning pool is not the option for me. But, no, I was doing uh, some intervals yesterday, decided to do them on the treadmill. Um, it felt really good, but happened to be listening to music because, you know, it's pretty tough on the treadmill, uh, the treadmill, so to speak. So decided and it was hot so i decided to listen to some music and it's a gym playlist i have which has quite a bit of drowning pool on it and um it was great i think you know interestingly i was actually reflecting on this you mentioned the age thing some of my music is very stuck in moment in time in terms of when i was training hard at the time and what was popular at the time but some of it's also just classic uh you know heavy workout music right and it varies across things but you know one of the things i have on my workout playlist is before my time it's you know kickstart my heart uh, by Motley Crue, 
So that's well before my time. So I think some some of these songs are, and I was reflecting on this on the treadmill actually, is like some of these songs are going to be classic workout songs no matter how old you are. Even if you're young now, some of these you, you will be listening to, right? I think you know the, the song I'm referencing specifically, Bodies by Drowning Pool, I don't think that doesn't exist in every workout mix. Like everybody, it's just, it's in every workout mix ever. And I think that that will continue. Yeah, no, I love that. I love the psychology behind music and and training. And I agree with you uh, with regards to podcasts. Like if you want to do your slower runs, um, yeah, listen to podcasts. I actually, what I do is as I edit the Super Sapiens podcast, I cut my voice out. I only listen to your voice when I try to do my slower runs. Really gets me slow and puts me to, to sleep. <laughs> I, I don't I don't quite understand if you think this is funny. Like, it, I don't understand. You just have these long pauses. Is that what's putting you to sleep, mate? Like, I don't get it. I, don't I literally don't understand this joke. Uh, I'm not even. I'm not even joking. I don't understand what you're talking about. I mean, are you saying that my I've got a great voice and the, the dulcet tones? Are you calling me boring? What are you? What are you talking about? I'll let uh, I'll let you listening to this decide what I'm trying to say. Um, let's jump into this episode then. Really, really cool one with Brian McMahon, Chief Strategy Officer at Delta G Ketones. This one has got so much learnings in it. Hope you enjoy this episode. Today we're talking to Brian McMahon, Chief Strategy Officer at Delta G Ketones. Brian holds an MBA from Wharton, having done his investment thesis on exogenous ketones and subsequently joining the company. Brian was a four-year varsity quarterback in his undergrad. Brian, welcome to the Super Sapiens podcast, man. Guys, thank you so much for having me. It is an honor. I'm a huge fan. Thank you. Um, I assume you mean of the, the product, not the podcast, but uh, we'll take the compliment anyway. No, just no, just of you two. <laughs> I'm, I'm a super fan. Yeah. I'd prefer well, just me, you. but okay, I'll, we'll, we'll throw David <laughs> in there for this, for this round. Yeah. Um, Brian, let's start at the beginning, the very beginning. What are ketones? <laughs> Ketones are this separate energy substrate from glucose and fatty acids that your body can break down and use as energy. Um, the reason they exist primarily is to keep your brain alive during times of nutritional deficit. So what would happen quite often, let's say 50,000 years ago, is we would deplete ourselves of glycogen. We're really bad at storing glucose. We're pretty good at, at storing fat. I think we can store on average around 100,000 calories of fat, only around 2,500 calories of, of glycogen, so glucose. Um, the brain primarily can only use ketones and glucose. So when we would deplete our liver, liver glycogen is really the last store of, of glucose. It, it stores a lot of glucose. Um, once we would deplete our, or sufficiently deplete our liver glycogen, the body needed a mechanism to keep the brain energized, to keep the brain alive, really. Um, so what it can do is transport or mobilize fatty acids from your adipose tissue to your liver to be converted into ketones to be sent to the brain. Um, so a good way to think about ketones are as this like emergency fuel source that do not require insulin. They actually sidestep a lot of the processes that glucose gets to be, that requires to get broken down and uses energy. A lot of the insul insulinogenic pathways. Um, so put simply... Ketones appear to be this quick, easy, clean, some would argue superior fuel source to, uh, for, for, some, for some things um, as opposed to, to glucose and, and fatty acids. Cool. And then just for, for listeners, you obviously got 
um, you know, endogenous ketones, which you can make. So if you fast for long enough, you get you end up with ketones, uh, and then exogenous ketones, which is what you're talking about, which is what Delta G is. It's a product there, and I guess just within that, if you could quickly for the listeners go through which what are the types of exogenous ketones and sort of the differences there between them. Of course, so there there are a lot of things that can <clears throat> convert into ketones in the body, um, and this space has gotten very confusing um, intentionally. <laughs> yeah, but from some people, but. Um, so I'll, the way I think it's it's good for to break down, and I think it helps people understand the impact that certain products will have on their blood ketones, is to really start at the bottom and then work my way up to the top. Yep. Um, while also making sure people understand that the point of an exogenous ketone is to safely and effectively increase blood ketones to levels that have been proven to be effective. Um, so if we start at the bottom. There are some people um, who claim that MCT oil can increase your, your blood ketones. It can to a degree, um, a very small degree. Now, there's, there's MCT oil that can be used for, for fat adaptation and, and fat mobilization for energy, which is, which is a very, very, um, very good case for using MCT oil. But as far as M using MCT oil to produce ketones, um, it's very ineffective. The amount of MCT oil you'd have to take to really bump your ketone levels at all would probably be too hard on most people's stomachs. And just, That's to, be, why if you, just to be clear there, it's also used in hospitals for people with uh, who are constipated. So it is, it will give you diarrhea. Yeah, yeah. If you have enough, if you have enough MCT oil, you will get diarrhea. Yeah. So like there, there are a lot of, um, a lot of studies um, using MCT oil, MCT oil to study ketones and most of them have like a 50% dropout rate. Yeah. So it's just not, it's just not a good way to do it. Um, and of course there are specific coffee companies. I don't need to say who, who say that putting MCT oil in your coffee will increase your ketone levels. It, it really won't. Um, so next up on the ladder, um, you have what's called R13-butane diol. R13-butane diol. Um, it's become weirdly popular for companies over the last two years, um, even though it's been around for like 50 years. Um, again, this is something that's going to convert into ketones in the liver. Um, it's an alcoholic ketogenic precursor. So it's not a ketone, but it will convert into some ketones in the liver. Um, problem is there are basically zero studies on using 1,3-butanediol for really anything. Um, and it's been used, it's been People have tried to use it to increase blood ketones in the past, especially from a research perspective, and it just it just doesn't really do much. So um, pretty ineffective, but there are a couple companies now who are selling it as a ketogenic product. Again, test your blood ketones, and you can see for yourself, it's not going to have much of an impact. Um, then next up the ladder, if you go to GNC, if you go to Vitamin Shop, you'll see ketone products on the shelves. Those will be ketone salts. Um, put simply... Beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is the ketone body that you will that you will be using for energy. There are three ketone bodies: beta-hydroxybutyrate, acetoacetate, and acetone. Really, BHB is the one you're going to be measuring. You're going to be using for energy. That's what's going to increase dramatically when you're fasting or on a ketogenic diet. Um, so that's that's the important one. BHB is an acid. It's very very difficult to take on its own as a free acid. What's called. Uh, the reason is it's just it's just too acidic for the body to take in. 
exogenously. So you'll have all these issues with your stomach lining, your teeth enamel. It's just, it's just not, not, you're just not able to take it really um, in, in, in any high amounts. What ketone salt companies do is they bind BHB to a salt, whether it be sodium, magnesium, calcium, or potassium. Uh, the reason you can do that is, is they can use salt really as a delivery mechanism to deliver BHB into the system. So you can bind BHB to a salt. Issue is to take enough BHB, so the ketone, to increase your blood ketones dramatically, you're going to have a massive salt load. That's probably not good for, for most people, especially, let's say, the older population. When If you're taking in 2,000 milligrams of sodium in a ketone product, it's probably not smart. Um, again, it'll increase your blood ketones a little bit, but really, it's, it's just, it's just not, not worth it. And people have argued that, all right, well, if I'm a ketogenic eater or if I follow a ketogenic diet, I need electrolytes and it'd be good to have some ketones on the side. You have no idea what combination of, well, you, have a, you have a pretty good idea, but a lot of them are blends. So you don't really know exactly what salt combination they're using. And it's just not a good way to take in ketones. So you'd be way, way better off just using an actual ketone product and then taking an actual electrolyte product. Um, so last up the ladder, we have what's called ketone esters. I'll get into the history of Delta G and why I believe it's superior, which is why I joined the company. Um, but as I mentioned, BHB is an acid, so it's really difficult to take on its own. So in, in Delta G's case, University of Oxford and the NIH decided to use that molecule I mentioned earlier, R13-butanediol. What's the, what's the NIH, sorry? Oh, the Nas National Institute for Health. Um, it's a, it's an organization within the United States that does a lot of, a lot of research. Um, so ketone esters, BHB, they decided to bind it to R13-butanediol, which, as I mentioned, is a ketogenic precursor. But the ketone ester in Delta G's case is using R13-butanediol as this delivery mechanism to increase the amount of BHB you can take safely. So with Delta G, you can take 15 grams of BHB safely while if you bind it to R13-butanediol, you'll still get some ketones with the R13-butanediol, but what's doing almost all the legwork is the amount of BHB you're taking. So if you look, and this is why the market has gotten so confused, um, and I, I just, and then really quickly as an aside, I never, I didn't come from this market. I didn't come from like biotechnology or nutrition. Um, I was on the finance side we couldn't just lie to our clients or customers. Like we'd go to jail. So it was like, it was a, it was a reality slap when I came to the nutritional market, you know, where yep. people can just say whatever they want oh, yeah. and they can use whatever study they want claiming that it's theirs and then just go about their business. Um, so that was definitely a reality slap and I'm, I'm still getting used to it. But um, I would say that, um, and I'll get into it. Like I said, I'll get into the history of Delta G, but um, I would say that 95% of the positive exogenous ketone studies were Delta G studies. So the, the, what's called the ketone monoester, it's called the monoester because there's one ester bond, um, which is an oxygen bond between the BHB and the R13-butanediol. There are other ketone esters on the market. Um, a lot of them are using R13-butanediol with MCT oil or MCTs. 
Um, and there's one that uses a different ketone body, acetoacetate. Uh, but I don't think the research community really understands what acetoacetate does yet, like what the function is. So that's kind of a question mark. But um, was, uh, if you were to go on... There was a ahead. paper released recently talking about the need for scientific consensus around uh, labels in the ketone research community. Yeah. And yeah, uh, that speaks volumes to how complicated and, and messy this space is for the end consumer, let alone researchers. I mean, I've been reading the research on this stuff. It's one of the reasons I got you on here because... You know, it's an interesting space. I think lots of people hear about ketones in the Peloton and they're like, oh, is this stuff legal? What's happening? Then, you know, they hear that, oh, ketones increase EPO. This is going to be bad. EPO is doping. Like, so all that has happened. But then you're trying to read into this and work out what the research actually says and what they are using, right? And then you go mm -hmm. like, oh, I can't make sense of this at all. Because the, the most complicated thing is, as you said, R13-butanediol is used as a you know, sort of side chain for what you guys do, but it's used as the main constituent of what other people do. So it seems to legitimize you know, what everyone's doing rather than, uh, you know, sort of, uh, the, the true sense of what's happening. Yeah. And, and like, if you go on all these product pages of all these other companies and I'm not here to dis disparage anybody, but, um, the, the, all the studies they reference are using an ester versus what they actually are selling to people. So that'd be like, that'd be like a study showing 200 milligrams of caffeine can help you cognitively perform better on some test. And then there's a company that sells a pill that has 10 milligrams of caffeine saying, Hey, look at this caffeine study. You should be taking our product because it's going to help you perform better on this test. Nobody would take that seriously. So that's what I'm trying to get across to people that ketone levels are very, very important. Blood ketone levels. Every researcher in this space will tell you that. So it's important for people to be measuring their blood ketones if they're taking a ketone product. I would pick, I, I, I should actually do this because it's a ketone products. Everyone says they're taking ketones, but like R13-butanediol, there's a company that says that, look, it's liquid ketones. You're just taking ketones. It's like, no, you're not. You know, so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a weird market, but um, luckily a lot of the researchers are starting to get more involved with um, starting to be more public facing than I think researchers have in the past with in this space. And they're starting to, to really wake up to the need, as you mentioned, to correct some wrongs that are, that are currently going on. And I think that's, that's going to be great along with testing, uh, being able to test your blood ketones in real time, like you would glucose, of course. Why is that important? Why is it important to monitor the levels in the blood and what, what are the levels you should be targeting? Yeah, the, the bottom level of technical ketosis, or like, let's say that the technical ketosis level um, is debated a bit. Um, and, keto and, and it's important, again, I think for your listeners to understand the difference between ketosis and ketogenesis. A lot of people will come to us and say, oh, I'm taking your product. I'm going to start burning fat and producing ketones. So actually, no, it's quite the opposite, actually. It's going to inhibit lipolysis to a, to a degree. Um, but just give you that end product. Um, so ketosis defined is just having enough circulating blood, blood ketones um, to use as a primary energy source. Um, while ketogenesis is the production of your own ketone bodies from your, from your fat. So the exciting thing I think about the technology, and I'll get to your, to your, to your, to your question about the levels, but the exciting thing about the De Delta G technology is those two terms used to be 
permanently intertwined. You would need ketogenesis to achieve ketosis. Now you can achieve whatever state of ketosis you want safely and immediately within 10 to 15 minutes, which I think is, is, is pretty interesting. And it's, a, I think, a new paradigm. Um, but as far as levels go, um, and again, I'm just basing this off of the research, um, you need pretty high blood ketone levels to assist in athletic performance and recovery. Cognition is a different story and metabolic health and brain health and, and things like that. Glucose control. I think those are a little bit lower levels, but um, as far as performance and, and, and recovery goes, you need pretty high blood ketone levels. And those levels are going to be around two to three millimolar, most likely. Um, and, and to put some numbers in context, if you took a ketone salt and you started at zero, nobody's going to start at zero. You ha- you, we all have some ketones in our blood, but um, if you started at zero, you'd probably get to 0.3 or 0.4 with a serving of a ketone salt. Um, now it's going to be a bit weight dependent. Um, I'll use kilograms, um, but um, I'm around Thank 81 you. or Appreciate 80. Appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought you'd like that. Um, <laughs> I'm around 81 or 82 kilograms. Um, if I took 25 grams of Delta G and I started at zero, I'd probably get around three millimolar, 3.0, maybe 2.8. Um, so a, a huge difference, of course. Um, and I would bet that, and, and therapeutic levels are going to be even higher. Um, and, and of course, this, this technology, of course, it was created for the military as a performance enhancing supplement or food. But um, a lot of the early research and the, and the continued research is on the therapeutic side. And that those levels appear to even appear to be even higher, like three plus, where you really need to give a lot of times your brain enough ketones where it doesn't have to rely nearly as much on glucose or insulin. Um, but uh, but yeah, those are those are the levels you want to shoot for, especially for endurance, performance, and recovery. That two to three millimolar range. Yeah. Just for listeners, before you mentioned lipolysis, that is uh, lipo being fat and lysis being breakdown. So breakdown of fat. So that, you know, it's not that you are uh, going through lipolysis uh, and then generating and then ketogenesis. It's more that uh, you're taking ketones. That's probably going to inhibit a little bit of lipolysis, uh, but allow ketosis. So have circulating ketone levels um, and potentially. Uh, unlike most metabolic situations, sort of potentially higher or high-ish circulating glucose is possible as well, which is where sort of the performance front comes in versus more historical uh, therapeutic effects where it's more about having low glucose and higher ketones. Um, or, yeah. you know, my hesitance in this space initially uh, and, and sort of the elephant in the room with some of these conversations is diabetic ketoacidosis, which is a life-threatening situation where you have high glucose and high ketones in absence of insulin because in type one diabetic people they don't produce insulin uh, and so you know you have no insulin and as a result you have high glucose and high ketones which is very very dangerous which is why i was always hesitant about using ketones initially for performance because it's like well the only time we see this combination is in a person who's about to you know who's potentially in a life-threatening situation looking back and, and sort of reviewing my viewpoint now i'm sort of I don't hold that belief anymore necessarily. Zylan, you're about to ask a question. Yeah, because it's related to what you're saying, because Brian, earlier you said that ketones is very efficient in bypassing certain mechanisms to get into the system. Is that because um, glucose needs insulin to get into the into cells and ketones doesn't? 
I'm not, to be honest, I'm not sure about why I think I'm not sure just, just why ketones do not require insulin or why they can sidestep a lot of the insulinogenic pathways that glucose requires. My guess is that it makes it a little bit quicker to use during times of, let's say, emergency in that, let's say that 50,000 year ago example that I gave, um, where you would need immediate energy. You would, you don't need to, you don't want to rely on, on insulin. You really want this clean, really efficient fuel source to be sent immediately to the brain. I don't know if David, you have a yeah. theory as to- I mean, uh, the, the body's pretty smart. It evolved over years to survive a whole bunch of challenges. And one of the challenges it needed to survive is periods of scarcity. So we, we don't see scarcity, you know, in the developed world anymore. You, you're forever within, you know, a short walk of a fridge full of food. But if you think about historically going through periods of um, fasting, you needed an, an, the ability to have energy for the brain and the heart that didn't require insulin or didn't have glucose in it, right? So really you're talking about your ketones can be used by many tissues, but the primary tissues that they service are, are brain and heart. And these tissues otherwise rely on glucose. They don't really use fats aside from the, you know, the ketones. So it's kind of aside it's it's kind of like a an alternative pathway um so it's in a period where you're going to have low glucose uh, low insulin generally uh that you produce them yeah so yeah without wanting to no, and, and, and- without wanting to say like it makes sense and and historically if we think about the natural you know the naturalistic explanation which is like oh when you're fasting you need something that helps your brain work better uh so when you needed to catch the whatever animal you could go do that like without wanting to use one of those which is you know a bit of a fallacy in terms of logical reasoning it, it does make a lot of sense from that story point of view, which is when I am in a period of fasting and I need to go catch or find some food, I need my brain to be working well, right? And I need my, I need my heart to be working well. So, you know, I don't want to use that, but for simple sake, let, let's use it. <laughs> yeah. And no, and, and you're right. We, when somebody asks me, what are the downsides or can I take too much of the product? You, you certainly can. Um, and there's really two reasons, of course, number one, if you're a diabetic, especially diabetes one, as you mentioned, if you take way too much, you'll, you'll probably enter a state of ketoacidosis, which is very, very dangerous. Um, and then number two, um, there is, which, which we'll get into, I'm sure there is this interesting interplay between blood glucose and ketones. Um, whereas Delta G specifically Delta G does do a really good job in my opinion of stabilizing blood glucose or, or let's say mitigating this, the, the spike and then the subsequent drop. But um, if you take way too much of something like Delta G, if you take like three of that product I mentioned earlier, three 25 gram servings in a row, it will probably crash your blood glucose and put you in a hypoglycemic state. So those are the really the two ways in which, and, and we've actually had that happen a couple of times. Um, triathletes or endurance athletes in general sometimes think that more is better of course if some is good more is better that's how it works (laughs) training supplements bikes yeah Yeah. um so we had a we had a actual professional ironman of course didn't didn't um talk to me first about this um about this method but he uh he he wasn't taking very much glucose he wasn't doing a good job of that he um he just was not feeling well. So on the run, I think like eight hours in, um, he took, I think it was like two or three of our highest serving product tactical just in a row, just back to back. And he ended up bonking and of course had a, had a bad time, you know, 
Um, and he told me he did that. He was like, oh, it's supposed to give me all this really good energy. Like, why didn't it work? Um, clearly, I didn't. He didn't. He didn't ask me, but I, I should have made sure he understood. That yeah, that's, uh, that's not really the case. I'm, I'm impressed. I mean, the other thing, the other potential downside, and it's worth us mentioning the elephant in, in the room, is that the taste can be pretty confronting for some people. <laughs> Um, yeah, I've used quite a bit of, uh, your product, uh, and another company's product and, and some salts as well. I've been experimenting with this stuff for quite a while, years even. And, uh, yeah, the, the esters, it, a rule of thumb is in my mind, at least is if it doesn't taste terrible, it's probably not working so well. Um, and how bad that tastes, it was really dependent, but, um, some pretty sure, rough. And the other way I, I'm very skeptical of things that taste too good. Yeah. You know, so, so um, but but no, you're you're right. Um, it is certainly an acquired taste, but I don't even know if you can acquire it. But yeah. um, you um, luckily the amount the for higher dosing for endurance athletes, um, it's not that much of an issue because endurance athletes don't really care about taste. Just if you think about that community versus the average population, uh, they have a higher higher degree of, of tolerance for, for, for bad tasting things. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think it's probably helpful here, like given my love for the research in the space, it's maybe let's go through sort of what you'd look at you know, for people who are interested in, you know, what does a race day look like in terms of, you know, in performance, how we're using ketones. And then let's talk about some of the other research around recovery and that sort of stuff. Cause I think there's some, some really mm -hmm. cool stuff that people may or may not have seen, may or may not have heard about um, that I think would be interesting for listeners for sure. So I guess, for Xylans, um, let's mention Xylans Ironman in this episode because we have a quota to meet. So for Xylans next uh, Ironman at Kona um, in two years' time, how do we? How does he use? Uh, how does he use ketones on on race day? Perhaps. Yeah. So so as I mentioned, that <clears throat> that blood ketone range is really important. Um, it's an ergogenic range we call it, or Goldilocks range, whatever you want to call it. Um, so it's really important to try and stay within that range for as long as possible. Um, now it's not going to be possible really to stay within that range perfectly. Some people are really good at doing it. Like for instance, I don't know if you know, Dan Plews, um, he's very, very good at dosing the product. Um, so he, he pretty much stays within that range the whole time. But, um, the way that most people, I would say a majority of people, especially men, it's going to be weight dependent. Men of course tend to weigh more. So I'll just use that as, as, as kind of my basis. Um, one full bottle of either our performance or tactical products. So 25 or 32 grams, um, one full bottle of that around 20 minutes before you start should get you to the top end of that range. Um, and then over two hours over two hour time frame, you're going to be using those ketones quite quickly and you'll probably get to around one on average around after those two hours. And then you'd want to take another bottle. So that's kind of the way you'd want to do it. And, and intra race, you'd want to take it with carbohydrates. Not only do you, do you tend to use the carbohydrates more effectively, but it also helps with using the ketones. Um, because as I mentioned, you want to make sure that not only I, the reason it, it helps with, with the exogenous glucose is you can help mitigate that spike and then subsequent drop when you're taking the glucose, but also with the ketones, <clears throat> you don't want to push your blood glucose down. So you'd want to take some glucose. Yeah. with it during the race. Um, so every two hours taking another full bottle is kind of the way to do it. It's important to understand that if you deviate from this, it's not as though you're going to have a bad time. Like if you want to say, all right, I only want to use two bottles for this full Ironman, totally fine. There's no like crash or come down. 
I would just recommend you using it in the beginning or middle parts to help with that glucose uptake and, and glycogen sparing effects of, of using the ketones. Um, but we try to keep it relatively simple. You can, of course, change it to, to however you'd want. Of course, you wouldn't want to take it too close together because then you'll have what I mentioned is going to crash your blood glucose if you take them like back to back. But if you, as long as you're separating the full bottles by like an hour and a half or two hours, you should be, you should be more than fine. And I think it's really important to, for people to understand is like the, the thing that's really relevant here in, in the whole ketone space is like the amount of ketones and that's in grams, right? Is how many grams of ketones are you consuming? That's the thing that you'll get products that are different volumes and, you know, two ounces or one ounce or whatever. It doesn't really matter. Like just it's the gram, the number of grams of ketones you're getting there and predominantly beta hydroxybutyrate as well. Um, yeah, that's a great point. Really quick, because our highest amount of Delta G that we sell is 32 grams in one bottle. And it's just a one ounce bottle. So you may think like, oh, this isn't that many ketones, but it's it's pure ketone ester. So it's actually a lot versus our other products, which actually have flavoring in them. So it's actually double the amount of volume. So it's exactly right that you need to make sure that you see how much ketones are actually in the bottle versus just taking a ketone product. Now, Xylans uh, listened to many uh, professional Ironman athletes talking to us about their fueling strategies. And he's now taking, let's say at 90 grams an hour for his race of, of carbohydrates, he's now going to start taking his ketones. He's decided, listen, I'm going to take uh, 30 grams of ketones every two hours. Does that mean he takes out 30 grams of carbs, you know, in a one for one or is he using the same amount or what's, what's the story there? How does he fit that in? There is probably some kind of magic number. Um, we try not to get involved in carbohydrate recommendations um, because people are so different with how much carbohydrates they need and they'd want to be taking. Um, the good thing about it, I think, is number one, Delta G, the ketone monoester, um, it fits quite nicely into whatever nutritional protocol you already have. So if you want to say, I still want to take 90 grams of carbohydrates, absolutely no problem. Um, a good way to view it is just you have more aggregate energy when you're taking ketones. So you, you really have more to work with. Um, but I will say you can lower the amount of carbohydrates you're taking in per hour if you do play with that GI distress line. A lot of people think, okay, well, I need the 90 grams of carbohydrates, but man, if I go to 95 or 100, it's hard for my stomach. So I'm really teetering on that line of having some, some issues. Well, then you can, you can lower it to like 70 grams and take ketones and, and hopefully that still will provide you with, with enough calories and, and, and energy to, to perform well. Yeah. And I mean, nobody's uh, energy neutral. They're all in an energy deficit post-race. So adding calories is probably, yeah, yeah. Is probably not a big uh, concern for most people there. Um, yeah. One interesting thing I did read recently, I think, uh, I'm not sure if I've, uh, if I sent you the study, Brian, but there's a, it was an ultra endurance race uh, and they were talking about using ketones for uh, sort of uh, the conclusion was in conclusion, uh, keto esters in uh, increase circulating dopamine concentration and improves mental alertness as well as improves post-exercise muscular inflammation. I mean, the second part we'll talk to, but I mean, the brain part of it is what it really interested me in terms of focus, thinking about performance from a brain uh, focus point of view, but also in terms of a thing like you, you're thinking, you know, U2MB is coming up. You've got an ultra runner who's been running overnight, starting to get a bit woozy. And there's there's definitely something here, I, I think at least, that is interesting to me. Of, I know you mentioned use them early in the race, but I'm like, maybe we use them late in the race. Maybe that's the kicker. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I didn't think about that. But um, no, that was a really cool study because uh, 
we, we, we were talking about this offline um, or just, just my conversations with him, but um, uh, Zach Bitter uses the product. And before that study even came out, we were having a conversation and he said, yeah, I think I performed pretty good. Like my body felt good. Um, my energy levels were pretty consistent. But what I noticed the most was I just had a, a lot more focus or, or, or I forget his exact verbiage, but he, he said something along the lines of he had a lot less um, distraction or, or his mind was wandering a lot less. Which, as you start inching up, like to an Ironman or an ultra marathon, like that's very, very important to remain focused and to not be suicidal or something. You know, yeah. it's like <laughs> I mean, it's, it's really important. Zach um, Zach does those crazy ultras on the track as well. For those who don't know, Zach, you know, holds uh, I think American records in a hundred kilometer, hundred mile, twenty four hour time frames on a track, running around in a circle. So you want to talk about oh, mind numbing and mental health. losing you, you focus? Mental. Yeah. Oh my goodness! Yeah, his, I think his split uh, his split on his American record was like six forty five. Yeah, think. he's for, for it, proper miles. proper quick. He's he, he runs a hundred miles on the track uh, quicker than many people run a marathon. So uh, you know, yeah. pace wise, so very. No, but, uh, but, but 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 to that point, I mean that that's a <clears throat> that's probably the most consistent feedback I get from customers is they just are able to remain focused for longer. And intuitively, I, I think it does make sense. You are satiating a lot of your brain's energy needs with this seemingly very efficient fuel source that that I, I know this this comment may de- may be debated, but I think it's it's becoming clearer in the research that ketones may be a preferred fuel source for the brain, even when glucose is present. I so might have to start taking this for meetings. Sounds like I need this, man. Don't joke. It's I'm going to ask Brian about this later, but I took a little bit before we started this. I definitely found uh, mental benefits around this stuff, be it meetings, uh, deep work uh, in the morning, particularly. And uh, it's definitely, you know, from a performance point of view, I can't say I've used a lot of ketones in race or anything like that, but I have used them for, for some runs and, and I do feel a little bit more efficient, if anything. So my RPE is a bit lower for the same output or my heart rate's a little bit lower for the same RPE. Or and then the mental a bit of euphoria almost is, is the way I sort of explain it. It's sort of I'm a bit clearer, a bit I enjoy the run a bit more. I'm mentally a little bit euphoric, but um, but yeah, I, I can't say that I'm on a higher intensity session. I've seen a huge difference. I don't think I've I've run much faster doing sort of intervals or anything like that. But the long slow stuff is yeah, it's it's a treat. Is it accurate that the military funded some of this research because because of that the the, cogn- the cognitive um, benefits? Yeah, yeah, and 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 really quickly, I'll just I'll just give a, a brief history of of the the actual technology. Um, our CEO, Professor Karen Clark, she's been a, a professor of physiological biochemistry at Oxford for around thirty years. Um, she had a lot of expertise in the '90s on cardiac metabolism. She was brought a beta hydroxybutyrate uh, molecule from uh, the late Dr. Richard Beach, who was at the NIH. Uh, she tested it on the heart um, and noticed the heart was um, way more efficient when ketones were in the equation. So um, they studied ketones together um, along with George Cahill um, throughout the 90s. And then um, DARPA, which is the, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency here in the US, it's basically the venture capital arm of the Department of Defense. So um, any emerging technology that can help the department or the, the, the United States from a de- defense perspective um, DARPA is, 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 is looking to invest most likely. Um, so DARPA had a project or, or let's say a program in the early 2000s called Metabolic Dominance. The best name They ever. were looking for 
the best name. name it's, on the back of, it's on the back of our t-shirts. Uh, uh, I gotta send you guys. I gotta send you guys. Please, uh, I, I just want to um, have that on the back of my thing. I've got a. Uh, oh yeah. my goodness. Well, you know, I just wanted it just on the front. Yeah, and that's it. Um, <laughs> but uh, they were looking for um, better fuel sources for soldiers on the battlefield. Uh, they were losing a lot of physical capabilities. Um, and, and like you mentioned, cognitive acuity, if they were there for, for a long period of time and they just weren't eating their MREs and MREs just aren't, aren't very good. I don't think. Um, so Veach and Clark presented their research on ketones, um, along with, uh, the program manager there, Joe Belitsky. Um, and DARPA ended up granting them $10 million to create an exogenous form of a ketone. Um, so they had $10 million at their disposal, which in the early 2000s was a lot for research. Um, and I still think to this day, that's the largest human performance grant ever given by DARPA. Um, so they, they took around two years to develop the technology, which is just that monoester. Um, they experimented with everything you'll see on the market today, ketone salts, 1,3-butane dial, um, et cetera, but only the ketone monoester delivered what what they intended and that was deep levels of, of safe ketosis um and because of that um they've had or because of the time <clears throat> and and when we've re released the, the product to the public they've had 15 years to do a lot of research so if you're a nutritional startup <clears throat> or, or a biotechnology startup and you have like two or three studies that's like okay that's that's great that's like a good place to start i think we have 60 published studies um, with around 25 ongoing, you know, so, um, and if, and, and it's simply because, and we don't sponsor studies. Um, if you're a researcher and you want to study ketones, it's very difficult to keep participants on a ketogenic diet or fasted enough to produce their own ketones to a meaningful degree. So why not just give them something that's really safe and can increase their blood ketones in 15 minutes to really whatever you'd want. Um, but, um, but yeah, so that was really the first um, interaction with the military and the technology. And then <clears throat> because it's a military project, we've always had very close ties. Um, and then in 2018, I believe it was, um, a company called HVMN, they were the exclusive licensee of the Delta G technology. So they were selling it under their own brand name um, because Delta G wasn't a brand at that time. Um, and with their product, they were able to secure a $6 million STTR, what's it's called, it's just a research grant from the military to study Delta G at altitude. So it's a hypoxia study. Um, and there's actually two of them, um, which was, which again was great. Um, and then after that, just more on the, on the history, um, after HVMN was selling Delta G for around a year and a half, um, the parent company that actually holds the patents decided to just create their own their own brand, which is an own company, which is where I work now, and it's called Delta G Ketones. So a lot of work with the military, and we have a lot of exciting stuff coming out, hopefully very soon with the military um, that I can talk about. I can't talk about it right now, but um, but yeah, they've always had an eye on on the technology, and it makes sense if you're helping the warfighter physically perform better and mentally perform better, especially during times of fatigue. You can, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand that it, the military would be pretty, pretty interested in something like that. Yeah, for sure. And I think um, gram for gram, 
works pretty well in a low intensity setting compared to glucose, I'd say. I'd say if you're, you know, looking at, you know, if you're holding a position in the fields, you're probably better off with ketones uh, gram per gram than glucose. That's not to say it's a superior fuel source as much as it is just that little bit more efficient for a longer period of time um, from my understanding of the the research. You, you mentioned hypoxia. Yeah. Um, we're going to get back to that because I want to ask about some studies on EPO because I think our listeners will be interested in, in ketones, EPO and, and altitude. Uh, I did see Dan Plews recently post about being at altitude and taking one of your ketone esters as well. Um, but I think it, it bears uh, noting for the listeners that there some of the stuff, some of the reason that research here is so prevalent is that the initial, some of the initial treatments for uh, recalcitrant epilepsy were the ketogenic diet, right? So, and then there was some hope for using exogenous ketones in that space. So there's a lot of research around that. And I think the too long didn't read summation is the diet is probably the the answer, unfortunately, but um, the ketones probably help a little bit, but, but not enough to really uh, have someone free living and eating whatever they want and then just taking the ketones, unfortunately, uh, yeah. for, for everybody involved, both the patients and you guys, because I think you guys would have a license to print money if that was the case. Yeah, no, for <laughs> sure. No, that, that's exactly right. You, you probably would want the, the issue, I think, therapeutic from a therapeutic perspective with ketone esters or let's say exogenous ketones, but ketone esters is that they don't give you 24 hours of ketosis or 24 hours of a fuel source like the ketogenic diet can if you're very, very strict about it. So you can have circ high circulating blood ketones for 24 hours, seven days a week if you're on the ketogenic diet for something like epilepsy. While if you're taking something like Delta G, it's only going to be four or five hours and then you have to take it again. Um, and unfortunately, it's still very expensive to manufacture and won't be covered by insurance and things like that. And we're classified as a food by the FDA. All these things that kind of work against us in that in that way, but you're exactly right. I think um, it can be good um, from a therapeutic perspective as maybe as a as an addition to the ketogenic diet. Whereas if you're just not producing enough ketones, you can try to maintain some state of blood ketones. Um, and also, even if you are very ketogenic, your ketone levels are still going to be quite variable throughout the day. So in the mornings, you may be at one, in the afternoons at two and a half. So in order to make them, let's say, a little bit more consistent, you can take something like Delta G to kind of top yourself off, let's say. Yeah. And until Delta G and similar products were available, uh, the metabolic state that is ketogenesis was inextricably linked to ketosis, as you mentioned earlier. So a lot of the benefits of the two are tied together until that point, until we can separate them out. So benefits of low insulin, benefits of lower glucose, almost separated from the benefits of having ketosis uh, or ketones is now possible, whereas previously it wasn't. So those two things were intertwined. So some of the benefits of um, uh, in epilepsy are probably related to insulin more than anything else, given that uh, if you have enough insulin, you can actually induce a seizure. It's how they used to use, it's what they yeah. used to use for, um, uh, I can't, the name is eluding me now, but um, ECT, which uh, they use, um, you know, shock therapy if, for those who've watched uh, some of the movies where they're trying to um, help with brain chemistry and, and circuits and, and those sort of things. So they used to use insulin for that. Now they use um, electricity for it. So uh, dissociating the two is, is important and, and interesting as well. Um, and I'm showing yeah, my true sure. nerd colors. People probably thought of me as uh, <laughs> as a real jock for many, many episodes. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, this guy's actually just a nerd. He's been lying to us the whole time. 
I wish yeah. they could see you. They could see your face light up and how excited you get when you start talking about this stuff. And um, Brian, a few years ago, we started hearing about ketones in the professional cycling pellets. And I work predominantly in pro cycling, so this is an area I'm very interested in. Are you aware of it being used in the peloton? How prevalent is it? Have you seen and heard benefits of it? Um, what can you tell us? Yeah, I can. Um, I can say that almost all Tour de France teams are using Delta G. Um, we've inroads with almost all of them. Um, I won't say all of them. I'll say almost all of them. Um, and then uh, it's interesting history. So in 2012 um athletes were starting to use the delta D, delta g technology i can't say who um but at that time i think it was seven thousand dollars for a 25 gram serving <laughs> and it's now it's now about 30 for for for, for the record yeah. it's now about 30 <laughs> 30 seems like a lot but when you said when you come from seven thousand, it doesn't seem so bad <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, um, very, very, um, I'll say, important athletes in the UK were using it in 2012 and 2016. Um, but uh, past that, um, the Tour de France started paying attention, and I would argue that of all professional athletes, it's probably the Tour de France who is on the cutting edge of nutritional research. Um, so of course they're probably going to lead the way in something like this. And they have, um, it's been interesting to see the shift, not, a, not necessarily away from performance, but a little bit more towards recovery. Um, I would say that all the Tour de France teams that use ketone esters use it for recovery, but I would say half of the Tour de France teams that use ketone esters use it for performance. So there has been a little bit of a, of a movement towards, in addition to performance, but movement towards, towards the recovery side on the Tour de France side. But yeah, I would say half maybe of the top Ironman athletes use it, um, or that I know of that, let's say, use Delta G. Um, and ultra marathon wise, yeah, a lot, of the, a lot of the big names, of course, are, are using it. Um, and I'm, and we're hoping that, um, people still view it in, in, in really two ways. Um, number one, people are still kind of, especially on the, on the Peloton are still kind of like, is this going to be banned at some point, you know? So they don't really want to be too vocal. Um, UCI has done some crazy things. Oh, as you guys know, um, don't know what you're talking about. Oh, you can't. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Of course. Um, they, um, so I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be absolutely shocked, but it's, it's such a clear counter argument that if you banned exogenous ketones, you'd have to ban exogenous glucose. They're like, they're like too similar and it's just, it just wouldn't make any sense. It's really just a macronutrient you're taking in. It's also um, very hard. It, it would be impossible to enforce because people could just yes. put it in another bottle and then you, oh, let's take your ketone levels and you say, well, I've just been, you know, my ketones are high because I've been exercising. Like it just doesn't make any philosophical or logistical sense it's hard enough to test for epo uh, you know you can't you can't be testing for ketones yeah exactly um but um and, and another one is people still view it as kind of their secret weapon you know that they kind of want to use under the radar so that nobody knows that they're using it especially if it really helps them they're like i don't really want to tell that many people about it because 
nobody, not that, not as many people use it yet, let's say. Um, so I still kind of want to keep it, keep it to myself, um, which may be just a function of that Tour de France professional Ironman, just space in general. But, um, but those are two, two interesting things that we're, we're going to get past hopefully soon. And so I guess in terms of a couple of things, um, let's talk EPO because uh, there is some studies on that, which is really interesting. And let's talk recovery because they're pretty similar in terms of dosing of the ketones. Uh, so maybe let's talk to some of the research there and I won't put words in your mouth. Maybe run us by some of the research that's happened in terms of EPO levels uh, and then uh, the recovery stuff as well, overreaching. Yeah, so um, EPO, erythroproietin, I always mispronounced that. Uh, I think that's right. Um, so it's just it's just um, um, a hormone that that stimulates red blood cell formulation uh, formation. So um, a lot of people remember that from uh, the Lance Armstrong days when he unfortunately got caught taking synthetic EPO or uh, EPO. Colin Chartier more recently in the Ironman world. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, so that's that that kind of um, jogs people's memory, but. Um, there have been two studies released in the last six months using Delta G, um, during recovery. So there, it was a recovery protocol, um, and they were able to show an increase in, in EPO. Um, I think it was 20% and 25% respectively, uh, the two studies, um, which is, which is pretty large. Um, so it would, it would basically replicate training at altitude to a degree. Um, so um, instead of spending three months in Boulder, you can hopefully use some Delta G for recovery and and be able to replicate that. But um, the cyclists were taking a lot of Delta G, um, and I think this is something that's really important to keep in mind. So I've I've of course spoken with the PIs on both studies, um, and they both have told me that even in the preliminary data um, or the pilot data, in order for the EPO to be increased, they needed to take a lot of the product. Or let's say they needed to achieve very deep states of ketosis. Okay, so at least two and a half, three millimolar is where they actually saw EPO increase. So again, I'm not trying to disparage anybody, but if a company that doesn't sell a ketone ester and their product only gets you to 0.5 is using an EPO study in their marketing, it's probably not. It's, it's not right. And I mean, you need, you need deep states. From a dosing point of view, from memory, it was something like a bottle as they finished and then a bottle twice more or something. It was like two to three bottles total, wasn't it? Um, so sort the first of- study out of, out of, yeah, the first study out of bath <clears throat> was um, a bottle right after and then a bottle every hour for three hours. So it's about so it a lot. It's about a hundred grams of ketones. Yeah. So actually, so it was, all right. So it was a bottle right after and then a bottle after an hour and then a bottle after two hours with carbohydrates and protein. Yeah. So. so it was three bottles of so 75 grams. Yeah. And then uh, the more recent one, uh, Peter Hespel's group, um, they were a bottle right after. So 25 grams right after and then 25 grams before sleep. Yeah. So 50 grams. Yeah. And, it, and you can see the ketone levels in the, in the study. They're getting up to two and a half or three millimolar. Yeah. And that's why I guess we're seeing these uh, riders nailing a bottle as they finish stages in the Tour de France because it's kind of the protocol that they have. Um, and then I guess on the, I mean, the EPO levels and whether that translates to anything is in itself a, a question that's unanswered at this stage, which, you know, may come out. But the interesting thing, well, the more interesting thing was the overtraining, overreaching stuff to me. 
Um, I mean, marketing wise, it's better to, for the EPO, but the uh, performance wise, overreaching, overtraining stuff speaks volumes to why it's used in the Tour de France, right? And that's probably the reason that it's uh, persisted in its use in the in the peloton uh, over many years of it being anywhere from seven thousand to to uh, you know to thirty dollars. So, what happened in that study? Yeah, so it was it was kind of exactly like you said. Um, it blunts overreaching symptoms. So if you have a really hard training block and you overtrain, which I would argue that a lot of people probably do, um, you're going to have these symptoms that are going to be detrimental to performance. But when they used Delta G in recovery during those really hard training blocks, um, those overtraining symptoms seem to have been mitigated to where they could actually perform equal to what they would have done before the, the overreaching. Um, and, and that actually goes to a theory about the EPO studies, where if, you, if you're working out a lot, you're, you're going to be increasing EPO. Um, so if they have a really hard training block, let's say three weeks, which I, I believe that both studies were, um, because it can blunt those symptoms of overreaching, you can continue to work pretty hard and continue to increase EPO. So again, um, that's just a hypothesis. I'm not really sure about it, but... Um, but yeah, I think I think being able to continue to work, even though you you probably are overtraining your body, I think is one of the, the benefits of, of using the product for recovery. And the dosing protocol was the same as EPO studies, the sort of bottle straight away. And yeah, the it was right after. Sleep. Yeah, and then before sleep. Yeah. And what does a protocol look like in the hypoxia stuff for people who are going to altitude here? Is it is it EPO related or is it otherwise? Um, we are not involved um, as a company. So I'm not quite sure, but um, I think they're getting up. It's it's going to be a little bit different because I think they're getting up to like 20,000, 30,000 feet. Yeah. Um, and they're taking, I believe, a lot. So like half a gram per kilogram. Oh, wow. Type. So that's, yeah. So in, for me, in, that'd be like 40 grams. I was going to say, and you and me, that's like, you know, it's almost two bottles. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. So, so it's using like, but it's, it's very acute um, in the sense that, um, it's like, oh, I'm going to be up in 20,000, 30,000 feet for like 15 minutes. So I want to be sure I'm very, very high. So like five millimolar, um, I believe is where they actually saw the difference for, and it's, it's, it's reaction times at that altitude. Oh, interesting. Okay. So very, very, so it's, it's more on the cognitive side. Um, <clears throat> talking about cognitive, cognitive side, um, if there are so many benefits for the brain, do you guys do anything then around concussions or TBIs or anything like that? Yeah, TBI is definitely a, a one that's pretty close to my heart, just given my background in, in American football. Um, I, of course, have a lot of friends who have, who have dealt with concussions, and um, I think it's just it's not good for a lot of sports. And it's it's sad to see that people are, I, I justify, justifiably so I understand it, but like are pulling their kids out of these sports that, that I love, um, for this exact reason. But, um, right now, um, it's the largest ketone study ever being done. Um, it's with special operations command, um, using Delta G, um, whatever, for, for some reason, now there's a lot of theory behind it, um, that I, I can get into, but. Um, for whatever reason, your brain, when it has an MTBI or a TBI, um, it enters into a state of um, insulin resistance. Um, it can't use glucose. Um, so what happens is your, your neurons get starved or your brain cells get starved. 
of energy and you have this hyperglycemia in the brain. Um, so the theory goes that if you have ketones present, you can lower the amount of glucose in the brain while also feeding the, the neurons. Um, so that's this, this, this study with SOCOM, um, it's being done with IHMC, which is the Institute for Human and Machine Cognition. They're probably the number one think tank for the Department of Defense. Um, I think it's 300 to 400 participants and it's at, um, it's at jump school where all the military branches go to learn how to jump out of airplanes basically. And they have an extraordinarily high MTBI rate there. Um, just from, uh, I guess a few of the stations where they practice, um, and the theory goes that if you are taking, uh, if you have high enough blood ketone levels at a time of an MTBI, as I mentioned, you can hopefully mitigate the symptoms of an MTBI because you can feed the brain and keep hyperglycemia, let's say, at bay. Um, so really exciting, of course, field. Um, if that really works out, that's going to be very huge, of course. And we also have another study uh, being done looking at treating TBIs. TBI symptoms post MTBI or TBI. So it's, it's a cool natural experiment because they have so many, like it's hard to get ethics approval for concussion, like just end of discussion, right? So then it's cool that they're, you know, having so many, uh, you have a situation where that they happen naturally anyway. So you can use ketones there. I'd be, I'm really interested in the recovery thing. My personal uh, theory is that uh, a mixture of creatine, which has also been shown early stuff on TBI is going to be used with, with some, uh, ketones in a sort of recovery protocol, hopefully in, in a handful of years, because I, I too am, you know, I'm a rugby fan. I'm a rugby coach, ex-player. And, and you, know, you want to see that stuff survive, right? You want to see South Africa lose another rugby world cup to Australia um, later in the <laughs> year. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. We've had some people taking the product um, in conjunction with stem cells. Oh, interesting. TBI. I don't know if you have any theory on that or if you have any opinion on that. Well, I mean, I know why they would be doing it because they're hoping that yeah. any neuronal death is mitigated and that they can sort of provide some new stuff to regenerate. And yeah, I hadn't actually heard the stuff on some of the mechanistic stuff you mentioned with the, uh, the brain's insulin resistance and the subsequent sort of hyperglycemia and potentially um, a, a component of hypoxia there as well. That's really, really interesting. But um, yeah, I guess watch this space. It's also hard. I mean, I'm excited about both studies. But I'm more excited about the treatment one because there's no way that you're going to have a bunch of people running around taking ketones to play uh, sport to then uh, just in case they get a concussion. So um, it's you know if you can get a treatment protocol, I think that's the and given the time to um, time to effect, right? We're not talking hours; we're talking minutes uh, to get levels mm -hmm. of uh, yeah. you know, maybe not therapeutic, but some level of ketones in the blood. I, I can see it being uh, something that would work fairly well, uh, in treatment as yeah, well. For sure. And, and there's actually, there's this, there's this, um, group called the concussion project. Um, and they're trying to sell it or they're trying to partner with a lot of NCAA teams and professional teams. And it's just a case, basically a Pelican case of just three Delta G bottles that you can just have on the field for, if anybody ever gets a concussion, you would just slam that. Mm. Um, and then hopefully the symptoms would, would be mitigated to a degree. And you can afford to be wrong there, right? If you're misdiagnosing, you can afford to be wrong because it's not exactly, uh, yeah. there's not a lot of side effects there. Um, exactly. The only problem with the study is blinding participants because there's not, there's no way you don't know you're taking these things. Um, <laughs> yeah. You, you know. The, um, the placebo has been an interesting problem to solve. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, yeah. gasoline comes to mind, but um, <laughs> that's, uh, no, I joke. Battery, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. not as bad as I say, um, but it's, it's pretty bad. It's, it's, no, it's good. I'm glad you're saying this because it's best to, 
to for people to expect it to be really bad so that they're not shocked when they take it you know i'd rather be i'd rather people be a little bit pleasantly surprised than than in shock i guess let's a couple here that i mean zylan alluded to before let's talk about firstly how you use ketones sort of day-to-day and what you notice while you're using super sapiens and ketones Mm -hmm. in conjunction because i think listeners would be interested in that um yeah 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 so um i do a lot of fasted training um or let's say fasted training um and i use I probably use more Delta G than anyone in the world over the past two years. So, um, and I try to use it for really a lot of different things because the product can be so many things to so many people and people can use it in so many different ways that I, I try to, I try to do that as much as I can. Albeit, I get a very large discount because I work at the company. But, um, so in the mornings I'll take like 10 grams with my espresso before any kind of training session. Um, and then to be honest with you, I, my favorite time to take it probably is in the afternoons. I'll take 10 grams um, when I haven't eaten for a while and I'm not going to eat for a couple of hours. And I just know it's going to deliver a lot of good energy for me, especially on the cognitive front. If I have a lot of work to do, I don't want to have caffeine. I don't want to snack. I'll just have uh, ketones. Uh, I just know they're going to be a really clean energy source for me. Um, and then on the weekends when I do larger endurance loads, I'll do um, – higher, higher amounts. So I'll do 30 grams around 20 minutes before I start like a two hour run. And if it, if it goes longer than that, I'll probably use some in between, um, probably 20 grams in between, a, let's say a three hour run. And then what does sports look like for you these days? I know we spoke about football. You played football in the past. What does sport look like these days? I'm still, I still have that meathead in me. So I'm still going to be lifting weights. Um, I still do weight training. So I'll do uh, like three days of weight training and then I'm, I'm, I'm a runner. So uh, my other days are, are pretty filled up with running. Um, nothing crazy yet. Um, I had to really train my body to go from more of a anaerobic sprinting type of um, build, let's say, to, to more slower. I'd calm myself down, of course, because you always just want to like run faster, um, especially if you, tra- if you play a sport like football, um, just, to, just to slow down. So it's taken me like a few years to kind of get good at, at running long distance, but, uh, but I'm getting there. So basically just running and lifting. I love it. Sounds similar to mine. Uh, sounds similar to my stuff. Um, so what did you, I guess using super sapiens in itself, like what were some of the learnings you took and then what did you notice with Delta G, I guess, in, uh, in terms of what people might notice if they're using both products? Yeah. So I, I wanted to test the super sapiens, um, with, without using Delta G for a little bit, because I wanted to, I didn't want it to be, to be tainted with, with Delta G. Um, and what I noticed the most, and I've never really tested my blood glucose, to be honest, I've always just been testing my blood ketones because I work at this company. Um, and I've never really tested glucose and I was pretty dismayed at how volatile my blood glucose is. Um, so it, it, it gave me a, a definitely a challenge to figure out how to make it more stable. And, and the amount of times when I was like, I have no idea why this is happening and to think, okay, well, maybe it's because of X, Y, and Z, I think was also just a really good learning experience for me. For instance, um, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, of the sauna. I go to the sauna all the time. Um, I did the sauna fasted and my blood glucose was all over the place, you know? Um, <clears throat> and so I did, I did, again, I would never imagine that, but intuitively, I guess it does make sense. But, um, and then after certain meals saying, okay, well, I think this is a slower carbohydrate. 
but it actually spiked my blood glucose and I had that crash. And then just the volatility, I think, was something that was unexpected because I think or I thought I was pretty metabolically balanced. Whereas I thought that if you if you came to me and said, okay, what does your blood glucose look like before using Super Sapiens? I'd probably say, oh, it's, it's really stable. I don't use, I, I use carbohydrates very intentionally. Um, but no, that's wrong. It's, it's, it's still really volatile. So um, I would say that was the biggest takeaway. The volatility, the unexpected volatility and what actually spiked my blood glucose that I was surprised about. Like something like the sauna, um, which I just, I was not expecting. And, and even with fasted training, I didn't think that I would have this massive spike when in reality, it, it does make sense. You're going to have this glycogen dump um, for the most part, um, which is going to spike your blood glucose. And then you're going to probably crash and, and um, still go around, have, to have that cycle happen, even if you think you're just using fat primarily. Do you remember if those are fast, fast runs or slower runs? Yeah, even even both. I mean, when I would like the first fifteen minutes, when I would start working out and running, um, and my heart rate wouldn't wouldn't increase that dramatically, I would still have that spike, you know. Um, and I thought if you would have asked me before, and again, I'm not, <clears throat> I don't have the the degree that David has, but um, if you would have asked me, I would, I would have said, oh, it's pretty, it's probably pretty consistent because I'm not taking in any exogenous glucose, so why would it spike? You know, um, so it was good for me to certainly learn that. We're coming back to all that because I've got some stuff that I think listeners will be interested good. in. But um, what did you notice with the ketones when you started using, uh, I guess, glucose and ketones or, or ketones with a glucose monitor? Yeah. So, so for me, um, it was good. To, it was, again, good to see what um, is, is in the research that it does help mitigate the spike that you'll get. So um, on certain runs, I, I was using, I, I would use UCAN, something a, a little bit slower carbohydrate. Again, I'll put that in quotes. Um, and something that's more fructose forward, uh, let's say, and to see what the interaction would be with, with Delta G. And both, both times, the range of blood glucose was smaller, which again, is, is really good to see. And um, it, it ties out with the research, but also it makes sense why people may feel like they have more consistent energy when using the product in conjunction with exogenous glucose. Yeah, for sure. I think some of the stuff you've seen is, is very normal uh, and, and probably not to be concerned about, like um, having a spike from the sauna, it's probably not a big deal, to be honest. And some of it may be to do with um, changes in hydration levels if you sweat enough because we are measuring, measuring a concentration. Um, it could also be true stress, which makes some sense as well. Um, you know, metabolic stress, which is what you're inducing with the sauna and, and part of why it's probably healthy. So I wouldn't be too concerned. They're similarly seeing glucose go up from high intensity training. I think it's probably like saying my heart rate went high during high intensity training. It's like, yeah, that's probably helpful in the longer term. So, um, but also in terms of the glucose roller coaster you're on, I think that people like you who are quite lean uh, and you've sort of put your arm over your head a couple of times and I've seen some of those, uh, I've seen some of that leanness here. Um, I think people who are quite lean and uh, very insulin sensitive can actually be on a bit more of a roller coaster because it doesn't take much insulin to really um, set you off a little bit. And we can see this. Um, there are some elite athletes who've had lots of problems with this because they're so insulin sensitive. They end up with these huge crashes as a result of eating a small amounts of carbohydrates, et cetera. Um, I, know, I mean, Alish McCogan, someone we've talked about on this podcast a lot. Um, and she had to pull out a lot of marathon because she was getting such rebound hypoglycemia as a result of fueling during a marathon with carbohydrates. So that sort of thing is a good example of 
true meta, probably true metabolic health. I envisage her fat oxidation rate is super high and she then is, but, but still has this sort of insulin sensitivity as a result. So it's, um, it's a bit of a fine line to walk. Uh, yeah. And, 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 and I think, <clears throat> I think it makes sense to really work on fat oxidation. Also be able to take glucose from a, your stomach, like work, they take enough glucose to, to know you can take it on race day and have something like ketones. So you kind of have this trifecta. Um, but yeah, I didn't even, I didn't really think about, um, think about that, but, um, yeah, the fat oxidation is, is really interesting. And there's been a few studies that came out recently looking at, um, athletes who are on that low carb, high fat diet, um, and what happens to their fat oxidation versus their lipolysis or their, uh, glycolysis it's one recently released uh, i won't mention author's names because i'm chasing uh, i'm going to chase one of them up to potentially become a podcast guest we're also chasing a ketone researcher um somebody that uh, you may or may not know that i won't mention on the podcast either who has given me a soft yes so uh we will be trying to get these people on um that researcher has is got some research that's about to come out and we're talking about uh having that research come out just as we get them on the podcast because that will be interesting and i won't ruin the I won't ruin the story, but there's some interesting stuff coming out um, that I'm particularly interested yeah. in personally. So we won't go too much more there. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's the same study, but it was released like a, a month ago. But um, yeah, they didn't. The researchers didn't notice any detriment to performance because fat oxidation was so high. Yeah, the crossover um, point had moved a lot. Um, yeah, all yeah, that yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's the same study we're talking about. Uh, so yeah. I'm looking to get one of those researchers on. Stuff, yeah. Um, and, and then another researcher as well, but people maybe you're welcome to email me and say, Hey Dave, this episode had, uh, two little Island in it. So please, uh, do less of those if you want. Um, I don't think I'll get that from people knowing, uh, knowing our <laughs> listenership, but we'll see. You'll get that from me. <laughs> <laughs> no, <clears throat> um, was there anything else you wanted to touch on David before we move on to the rush round? No, I think that's, uh, it's pretty good. Uh, I think that's, Let's head on to the rush round and, and go from there. Brian, do you have a nickname? Oh, um, yeah, I don't like it, but B Mac. A lot of people call me. <laughs> um, yeah, that's interesting. Don't call me that. It's Just so. That. There's a famous South African Mac. cricketer. Um, yeah, he got called Big Mac. Um, I can't remember his oh, name. Was it, it was Brian McMillan? It was Brian a famous Mac South African Millen. cricketer that used to get called. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I'm only like I'm like six two, one eighty five, so I'm kind of like average. So call me big would be kind of weird, you know. I'm not like small, and I'm not like really big. Um, but um, uh, Big Mac, and then my middle name is my mom's maiden name, Broderick, and some people have called me Brody in okay. the past. But no, no cool nicknames. No, no winners. <laughs> yeah, I'm no sorry, winners. I'm not hearing any winners. <laughs> um, Should have just said no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, do you scan when you have the sense on? Do you scan over or under? Uh, over. Good. You're welcome back. <laughs> nice. Um, you, you spoke about espresso earlier. How do you take your coffee? Uh, black. And with ketones. And with ketones, yeah. Um, I've, I've, uh, I, try to, I try to do an extended fast um, like once a week. So I just had black coffee and I just kind of got used to it. And I, of course, there are some people who may say that's breaking a fast, but um, don't judge me too harshly. Um, so I'll just, <laughs> that, that's kind of how I got used to having black coffee. 
Very good. Uh, I'm gonna. I was gonna ask what what's your favorite meal before exercise. I have a feeling you're gonna say ketones or nothing. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, what about post? Right. You've been out. You've been out running for two hours. What do you come home and what do you nail there? And don't don't just say ketones. No. Um. I have a recovery shake for sure. Just like a protein carbohydrate shake. Um. And then usually I'll just. This may sound kind of weird, but I'll just make some um, some ground lamb over rice is kind of my go-to. Um, I think it covers a lot of nutritional bases, um, and also I just I really enjoy it. So yeah, that's lamb is underrated. Um, I had a period sure. of my life where I ate very little meat, and the only thing I craved was lamb. So uh, I think that's pretty good for the rush round. We might have to get you back on. I'd love to get back to um, talking about more of the fasted training. I heard you on another podcast talking about how you do a lot of your your um, exercise in a fasted state, and you mentioned it now. And you know, that's the stuff I'm interested in because you know a lot of people are saying X amount of grams of carbs for for exercise, and you should be taking this other and and they don't believe in fasted training at all. Other people are saying fasted training, and it's Obviously, this is always, we live in a black and white world when the world is probably more gray, you yeah. know, um, but yeah, David's always yeah, up. No, it's certainly, it's certainly, be, it's certainly become popular. And I think I just really want to be fat adapted. Like I really want to make sure I'm, I'm able to do that. And it appears as though if, if you limit your carbohydrate intake before or during any kind of training sessions, that's when you can really, really work on that. Um, but I do think that... <clears throat> There is a there is still a large community, and again, it depends on on how hard you're pushing, of course, um, or how anaerobic you're getting. But um, there are, for instance, I was having a conversation with with somebody the other day, um, kind of an amateur Ironman, and um, he was going on an eight mile run, and he was packing like two Morton gels, and he wasn't even he wasn't like trying to push it. And I was like, oh, so are you are you like really pushing? He's like, no, just like an easy run. And I was like, oh, I didn't want to, I didn't want to be the guy that was like, you shouldn't be doing that, but, um, or, or you don't need to do that. But, um, in reality, it'd probably be good for him to not do that. But I think the mindset behind a lot of people is like, oh, I need to have food or else I'm going to have zero, zero calories to burn, you know, so I will suffer. And I think, um, I'm not sure if you guys, uh, know Mike McKnight, if you've ever heard of him, ultra marathoner. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so he kind of changed. He should have changed everybody's mindset around that. He did a uh, 24-hour, 112-mile, zero-calorie run, um, just sodium. Yeah, so he ran 112 miles in 24 hours, which in itself is pretty extraordinary yeah. of a time. Um, and he did it with zero calories, zero exogenous calories. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, very interesting. We do have a researcher that is going to come on Zylan, uh, one of our researchers that we're hoping to talk about faster training with. So uh, lots coming. Uh, lots. We've got this episode dropping in and around some other episodes that are of a similar vein uh, to give people some insight. The, the other researcher we mentioned, Brian, um, and then this researcher on uh, talking about metabolic flexibility and what that is and, and how to improve it. And oh, fantastic. We'll touch on some, uh, some training stuff as well. So uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get there. Perfect. This has been very, very enjoyable. And I listened to a bunch of podcasts with you on in prep for this and I'd comfortably say ours is the best so far. Mostly thanks to David, not me. For so sure. Thanks for, for coming sure. on, man. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. No, thank you for having me. Uh, this was a lot of fun and, um, no, it was great. Hopefully, um, I, I can't wait to listen to those other episodes uh, that you guys mentioned that you're having in the future. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is a lot of fun and uh, hopefully it's not the last time we'll chat. Hopefully not. Welcome back. Let us know if you want to come back. Uh, send us a t-shirt. I want one of those t-shirts. And uh, <laughs> for sure. yeah, we'll, we'll go from there. There we go. Brian McMahon, Chief Strategy Officer at Delta G Ketones. Very, very insightful um, conversation. I really enjoyed that. David, can we talk a little bit about the second meal effect, which I believe you know has to do with, with the effects of fasting in the morning? Yeah, we've got a blog on this that I'll link to in the show notes. But in, in short, if you either, if you have a meal without carbohydrate in the morning or don't have a meal uh, versus having a meal with carbohydrates in the morning, you will have a larger glucose response uh, if you haven't had carbohydrates or um, haven't had any meal at all in the afternoon. So that second meal. So let's call it you fast through breakfast or you have a low carb or a no carb breakfast. You'll have a larger glucose response for the same dose of carbohydrates than you would if you'd had carbohydrates in the morning. And so one of the things that Brian mentioned Why is, is that so. One of the things Brian mentions, he sees this, right? He sees this, he gets on a bit of a roller coaster in the afternoon and he also fasts through a lot of his mornings or has, you know, very little intake. And so the reason you can see this, um, the researchers postulate is, or it looks like you have this increased amount of fat in your blood, which makes sense, right? You're mobilizing fatty acids to use for energy. And this causes a level of insulin resistance. Um, the question is whether this is really a problem or not. And it's hard to know, but you will see that. And that is a, it's a known thing. It's called the second meal effect. So I have a good blog on it. Um, and you know, if you Google super sapien second meal effect, you'll find it, but also I'll put it in the show notes for people. So that may be one reason people are seeing an increased, uh, glucose response there. Now, of course, if you fast, do a bunch of exercise, and then come home and eat, you're probably not going to see this because you'll be a glucose sink because you're, you've depleted yourself so much. But um, it is worth noting that, you know, if you do fast through for whatever reason, you may see this uh, sort of a, a larger increase in glucose than you may anticipate. Did that not surprise you? Um, it sounded like it surprised him when he went and did his fasted runs and, and the glucose response. Did it not surprise you? No, not really. I mean, it probably surprised me two years ago when I started using super sapiens and started, you know, seeing this stuff. But after a couple of years, like a lot of this stuff is recurring patterns that you see from people. So his initial increase in glucose that he saw, um, be it from high intensity or not, it's probably a result of his body mobilizing glucose because he's metabolically not really uh, able to output the energy. So if you think about ramping up your metabolism and energy output, um, ATP production, your fat metabolic rate is not going to go up that quickly as a result of just starting running, right? So if you just get out the door and start running and you don't warm up, then you probably will see a bit of an increase in glucose um, to, to compensate for this, right? So that's what it's there for. Uh, you quickly output some glucose to, to sort of bridge the gap until you can upregulate your fat metabolism. So it doesn't surprise me that he saw that uh, sort of bit of a spike in glucose or increase in glucose initially as a result of that. It happens to me pretty much every training session. Uh, sometimes as well, you've got this metabolic effect of... Uh, or um, hormonal effect of training at the same time each day and your body anticipates it and so is ready to go and sort of like, oh, wow. squirts out some glucose. Yeah, it's, I mean, in di and people with diabetes and the, the diabetic community, there's this known thing of what they call the, um, the dawn effect, which is waking up and, and having a little increase in glucose as a result of waking up. But you can see the same with training as well uh, with athletes, especially if you train at the same time pretty regularly every day. 
I wanted to ask you, I remember you started using Delta G ketones a couple of months ago and experimenting with it. What has your experience been so using I, ketones? I mean, I did use some Delta G that they kindly sent me a little while ago. I've also used um, a ton of ketone salts in the past um, when the S's were way too expensive and I was living in Australia or something like that and couldn't even get them. So I found initially the salts were cool, but yeah, the effect doesn't really work that long. Um, not really as strong. Now that I've used some Delta G, I've used it in a couple of ways. I mean, it's it's almost, for me, a little bit, it's close to cost prohibitive to use it, you know, multiple doses a day to try and, you know, prevent overreaching or whatever. And, and the best way to prevent overreaching is not train silly. So let's go that way to start with. Um, I alluded to this during the episode as well as like the EPO stuff is interesting and fascinating for me. But just because we increase EPO doesn't mean we increase red blood cells. It should, but we don't know about that. And the increase in EPO is one thing. But the question is, like, is that sustained? How long does it last? What does that mean for red blood cells? Right. So he, Brian sort of quantified it with respect to altitude. And that's a nice way to do it. But I'm not 100% certain that we will see that convert into performance changes or red blood cell mass changes. Right. So the thinking is increased EPO drives increased red blood cell production which then should drive increased red blood cell mass and therefore better oxygen carrying capacity and better performance. But there's a couple of steps in there and the body's pretty complicated and complex. So yeah, just to say increased EPO increases performance, not convinced. Uh, it's not the same as taking EPO or something like that. So we'll see what happens there. Let's let the dust settle on it and, and see what's born out. But um, I do say often, you know, success leaves clues and the fact that Peloton is still using it should give us insight into the fact that it's helpful, whether that's through EPO or something else, um, you know, should give us some insight there. Uh, in terms of my other use, I use it a lot sort of day to day. Um, before this podcast, for instance, take, you know, five grams, it's a pretty small dose comparatively, a pretty cheap dose comparatively uh, to just sort of uh, work with a bit better focus. Um, just find them a bit clearer mentally, a bit more focused uh, and kind of enjoy the feeling and can zone in a bit better and do some better deep work. So, uh, yeah. Now we know where all your jokes come from. It's almost doping, mate. You need to dope to joke. Come on, man. Oh, don't even start. Don't even start. <laughs> I thought Brian and I would be delightful enough and insightful enough for you and need to take anything to be engaged. And, um, but there you go. That's another episode of the Super Sapiens podcast. That was enlightening. I really, really enjoyed that. And I hope you did too. We would love to hear from you as always. You can email us david at supersapiens.com with any glucose related questions. Also rate this podcast, share it with a friend, and we'd love to hear from you. Join us on Discord. We've got a Discord channel. Search Super Sapiens on there. Until the next one, David, thank you so much for this. Thank you, mate. Appreciate it.